Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless and welcome. To the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. This week, well, we're recording on July 4th, so we'll be talking America and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher extraordinaire and writer, by the way. How are you on this July 4th? in the year 2022. Mosse. I am doing well. Uh, I've been enjoying your uh, Twitter pictures uh, from your vacation. I'm wondering, where are you right now? I come to you from the uh, great state of Connecticut, um, but I spent the last week going up and down the eastern seaboard. For those that uh, that follow, and uh, if you've listened to previous podcasts, you'll know that we've kind of taken... Uh, my teenagers uh, and one of the teenagers who eventually will be kind of thinking about going to college and get a, a preliminary type of feel for what college is. And so we went up and down the East Coast. We started up in Connecticut. We went down and saw my alma mater down there at, uh, at Rutgers. Not that either of them have any interest in Rutgers. Um, then we went down to Princeton. Then we went to Penn in uh, Philadelphia. Then we went down to uh, Georgetown, then UVA. And a lot of these different places. Now, I'm not saying that any of my spawn have any chance of getting into these places. But like I said, it was just kind of a preliminary way for them to get, you know, wrap their minds around what is out there. And maybe if they work really, really hard, maybe some of these wonderful places. And it was cool. It was a really fun trip regardless. And to see some of these places who I'd, I'd been to in the past. But, um, you know, for example... Penn. I hadn't been to Philadelphia and Penn in a long time. It's gorgeous. It's like a little village within a city. So you get, kind of get the best worlds uh, over there. It was fun to go back to Rutgers and do that. But now I'm back here in Connecticut. I'll be back in uh, the City of Angels starting uh, starting next week and back at it when it comes to uh, work. Uh, nice little respite, nice little uh, vacation. And, you know, July 4th, I'm going to go out. I'm going to hit a golf ball, which I do about once every year. And then I'm going to have a big old party. and We're going to do a barbecue. So what about you, Mossy? What are you up to? Been on a big documentary kick. I did, in fact, watch that LBJ CNN documentary that our good friend Jason Wormser recommended to me. Uh, also, I've started a new true crime doc on HBO. It's called The Beatrice Ooh. Six. 
Um, it's about really a terrible case in this small town in uh, uh, Nebraska. Back in 1985, this uh, grandmother was uh, raped and killed by six people who were arrested, convicted of the crime, and then many years later were exonerated and let out of prison. And I'm two episodes in, it's six parts. I'm going week to week, by the way. So if, if you want to binge it, you're going to have to wait a few weeks. Uh, it, we're taping this on a Monday. The third episode airs tonight. Uh, and I'm only up to the part where they were arrested. And it seems like the most open and shut case in the world. So I'm wondering how these goobers ever got out of prison. But apparently they did because they're walking around free today. And it is it is quite the case. So I, I recommend it. I know our uh, digital boss, Catherine Donnelly, is big into these true crime docs. She loved the staircase. OK, so All this right. will be the next one we'll try to get her into. Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I have not watched anything because, as I said, I've been pretty much on the road. And and it, it was like I said, it was fun. Uh, you will if you are watching the podcast, which I know some of you do on YouTube and different uh, platforms out there. You will see that I am wearing an original uh, in the uh, denim. Long live the denim, the red, white and denim here. Uh, this is a this is a 94 original. And I mentioned that I went down to uh, uh, to D.C., and my mother lives in D.C., and I hadn't seen her in a number of years, and actually before the pandemic. And so it was wonderful to see her. And at one point while we were you know, having dinner, she said, hey, listen, I was in the, the storage facility, and I found this. And she pulls out this manila envelope and hands it to me, and it is an original. Now, um, I have a lot of replicas, and there are a lot of replicas flying out there. And so I immediately wanted to look and see what it was from. And this is an actual original. Uh, you can tell by the tag. You can tell by the outline of the uh, the numbers. If you look, a lot of times the replicas will have just red numbers or red uh, lettering on the back. And uh, the originals had white outlines around them. Doesn't necessarily mean that if it has white outlines that it's an original, but I know that this is one of them. So I'm wearing it in honor of July 4th. And let's be honest, the best and certainly <laughs> the most American jersey that we have ever uh, ever come up with. So uh, that's in honor of this uh, th this uh, this great nation. But it was like I said, it was fun to get down there. Uh, but I haven't watched anything. But I'm definitely watching that thing. Although, as you know, I'm going to have to wait a few weeks for it to accumulate so that I can binge it from uh, from start to finish. Uh, anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. Well, you know, as I said, this is Monday, July 4th in 2022, and we have reason to celebrate not just, you know, the uh, uh, the, the uh, Independence Day and the wonderful country that we live in. But we also have, from a soccer perspective, reason to celebrate. Eureka! It has finally happened since 2008, the last time a U.S. men's, uh, I guess it would be a under-23 team, qualified for an Olympics. It has happened with our under-20 team, and I think we mentioned last week, the tournament right now within CONCACAF has been redesigned not only to qualify the teams for next year's under-20 World Cup, but also qualifying for the next Olympics, something that, as I mentioned, has been <laughs> a source of, uh, of consternation and an ultimate failure since 2008. I think you mentioned last week the last time uh, we had a men's team in the, in the Olympics, it included the likes of uh, Stu Holden and uh, Marisa Du, if I'm not uh, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. My goodness. Well, uh, congratulations then. Congratulations are in order to the United States Soccer Federation and to this team. Um, and look, you know whether it's uh, 
Mikey Varas, the coach, or all of these players, and some of these players, Masi, as you know, we've we've kind of watched and have come to fruition in Major League Soccer, and a lot of them are in those development leagues. And then some of them have kind of burst on the scene because all of our focus and attention was on this under-20 team and the CONCACAF qualifying players like Diego Luna. You know, we've seen the you know the, the Paxton Aronsons, who was wonderful, Quinn Sullivan's, Kate Cowles, these types of players, um, Puxtas, uh, you know, these uh, these players, most of them play in the U.S. and most of them are in the MLS development system. And I think that that says a lot. And in the past, you know, we've we've been excited and rightfully so about a young, talented group. But it hasn't always translated into qualifying for these uh, these tournaments and in, in particular the Olympics. And as we've mentioned time and time again, why is it important to qualify for the Olympics? Well, it is an incubator. It is a platform. It is an opportunity. If I think back, even back to the 1900s when I was running around, and I think about the 1992 Olympic team at that point, you had guys like myself, uh, Kobe Jones, Mike Lapper, Joe Max Moore, Brad Friedel. Uh, The list goes on and on and on of players who matriculated up to the World Cup team and were on that final roster in 1994. And that we have wasted it now for so many cycles uh, shame on us, but at least now we are back. So congratulations to this team. Do, uh, initial thoughts, Mossy, on this accomplishment, because I've seen some people say, uh, you know, whether, whether it's Mikey, the coach, um, or this team has done something that we haven't been able to do. And, and yes, that is true, but it's also in a very different type of setting because qualifying for an under-20 World Cup is not anything new out of CONCACAF. And as a matter of fact, this is the third time in a row that we have we have done that. But that this added component of also qualifying for the Olympics was attached to it, has given them that opportunity to do something that hasn't been done. But it is a little apples and oranges. Yeah, I mean, they did all this in dominating fashion. They won the CONCACAF Under-20 Championship, outscoring the opposition 31-2 to across seven games. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, along the way, they clinched berths in the 2023 Under-20 World Cup and the 2024 Olympics. I do have an embarrassing correction to make. I've said multiple times on this podcast that the next Under-20 World Cup is in India. It is, in fact, Indonesia. So my apologies on that. Um, And yeah, a couple of big picture thoughts. Um, It's been an incredible last 13 months for American soccer, if you stop to think about it. If you take it from beating Mexico in the Nations League final, beating Mexico then in the Gold Cup final, qualifying for the World Cup, Seattle becoming the first MLS club to win CCL and clinching a berth in the Club World Cup, and now qualifying to the Olympics for the first time since 2008. So the U.S. has really exercised, of American soccer, I should say, has really exercised a lot of ghosts here in the last 13 months. And, you know, the U.S. right now is humming uh, in terms of youth development. They're pumping out players like it's nobody's business. And they hadn't been able to showcase that much the last couple of years because COVID led to the cancellation of a lot of youth tournaments and the U.S. failed to qualify to the last Olympics, which to me was all down to the best under 23 players not getting released and that tournament occurring during the offseason in MLS. So it wasn't any reflection on talent development. It was just the circumstances conspiring against them. But now they're going to start to get to showcase all this young talent. This tournament was the first step. Uh, it did feel like you know the U.S. had this Ferrari parked in the garage, and they finally got to take it out for a spin and kind of flex their youth development muscles. And and it was great to see. And it really sets up an exciting next couple of years where they're going to get to showcase all this young talent on the world stage with the Under Twenty World Cup, also the Under Seventeen World Cup in Peru, which I presume the U.S. is going to qualify for, and then of course uh, the Olympics in Paris in twenty twenty four. So yeah, I think it is a big deal, very exciting. It's definitely worth celebrating. 
I also think the way in which that this team played, because, you know, keep in mind that, you know, people talk about vertical integration and having, you know, ideologies and identities and all that kind of stuff. As we've said many times, a lot of times that's bullshit. But if you have a national team under Greg Berhalter that we, like we said, has tried to do things differently in the way that they play, I, I could see that this was a team that was trying to do things in a different way. And by the way, doing it in a difficult situation, obviously a way, the field was not great oftentimes when they were playing it. And yet their confidence, and more importantly, not just confidence, but their individual ability enabled them to play out of the back, to show individual moments of flair, to show a beautiful arrogance at times and that beautiful, bold confidence that at times has been lacking. And then I think most importantly, Mossy, to combine it with some guile. And keep in mind, I mean, if you if you look at the, the ages of these players, these are all 17, 18, 19-year-old players, okay? And yes, they have started on their career. But I do think that there's a uh, an osmosis type of thing going on where we are seeing the American player not only develop the, the physical skills to be able to withstand, especially a CONCACAF scenario, which is in and of itself a challenge, but also the guile, the, the cleverness, um, and in, in, a, in a certain sense, despite their age, a maturity. And I think that that's important. And it's not just all about dark arts and, and, and that kind of stuff. It, I think it's a real, it's also a ruggedness that I think we saw, a recognition on how to, how to take a hit, how to use a hit, um, a, a recognition of the clock, a recognition, all of these different things that at times we're kind of reserved for the elites of the world, or at least not the U.S., I think we're seeing it. I think that that comes from, at an early age, being placed in situations where they're taught. Uh, also, it's not just it's not just the development of players. It's also the development of coaches, coaches who have been around, who have seen things, who have understood things, who have learned lessons from the past. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of this confidence, and like I said, it's not that we haven't had been excited in the past about generations, but all of this con- confidence, I think, is is fair and right to have and fun. It's fun to be excited about the U.S. and this pendulum swinging because guess what? Our friends Mexico didn't qualify. This pendulum that seems to swing back and forth and the, uh, you know, the gap that we talk about so often that it gets bigger and smaller relative to the U.S. and Canada for the most part. Uh, right now, the gulf or the gap, if you will, is enormous between the U.S. and Mexico. It doesn't mean the U.S. can't lose to Mexico at the youth level or at the senior level or that Mexico can't go to the World Cup in November, December and do well. But just when you're looking at the amount of talent, to your point, that the U.S. is producing and then the depth of that talent and the desire of that talent from a lot of people around the world, these are the fruits of labors. These are the fruits of the seeds that were planted a long time ago, as we said, ironically, at the worst, maybe the worst possible moment of U.S. soccer, not qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. And now we are reaping the benefits. Yeah, on Mexico, it's interesting. If you post on Twitter about there being some sort of changing of the guard and the U.S. overtaking Mexico as a soccer nation, you do get a lot of pushback from Mexican fans there. So it makes it seem like they're in denial. But the Mexican media is not. Uh, there are a lot of conversations taking place. I listened to the Football Picante podcast. They did an hour-long episode on this uh, Mexico under-20 failure. They crashed out in the quarterfinals of this tournament, losing to Guatemala in penalties. So they didn't qualify for either the under-20 World Cup or the Olympics. 
And yeah, it felt like U.S. national team discourse circa 2018. They were talking about how the system is all wrong and they need to clean house and the federation and they need to start over, tear it all down. So it was amazing to hear those discussions going on on the Mexican side now after we heard them so much on the U.S. side after the qualification failure last World Cup. Masi, you, you watched this as, as, as I did. Are there... Are there players that you think are headed for greatness? And I know that's dangerous because they are still young and it doesn't always come to pass that they graduate up. But, you know, when it comes to um, you know an Aronson right now or a Luna um, or a Sullivan. And by the way, kudos also to individual teams like uh, Philadelphia Union, which we know has gone all in on their development system. And this is paying def- dividends, not just for the Philadelphia Union uh, and not and not just on the field, but off the field in terms of the assets that they are uh, uh, that they have fostered, but also for the U.S. national team. Is there anybody right now that you think and and look, there's nothing to say that these players that were here because they had some injuries, too, are going to be ultimately the players that are representing next year in the Youth World Cup or in that Olympics going forward. And keep in mind, for, for just as a reminder, a an Olympic um, uh, Olympic tournament for the men is under 23 at the time of the Olympics. Everybody has to be, except for three players that are over the age. And your your three overage players come in after, at the actual Olympics. They don't come in any qualifying. It wouldn't matter here because the qualifying's already done. So what these teams ultimately look like in their perspective uh, um final you know version whether it's in the under 20 world cup or in the olympics might be very very different than these players but this is all we have to go on so who who stuck out to you yeah there's a lot to get to there that i want to circle back to but i'll answer your initial question um uh, i i love jack mcglynn I, I wonder about his athleticism at the highest level but just his passing ability in the midfield i thought uh, most of what the u.s did well it started with him you know with some clever passes out of from that midfield deeper position um, Diego Luna is such a fun player. I mean, his technical ability, his swagger that he plays with, but you know, and it, it's a boring answer, but certainly Paxson Aronson is to me that the guy that comes out of this tournament as sort of this, uh, up and coming star. And, you know, these debates are already occurring. I know it's always fashionable to say that the younger sibling is actually better than the, the older established one. Uh, right. what do you think? Do you, do you perhaps see a, an even higher ceiling in Paxton than Brendan, or that's just people getting ahead of themselves? Uh, I mean, look, you can see that they are related, but I do think that they play differently. I think that Brendan maybe is more rugged, and and that's not a pejorative. That's actually a, a, a good thing. And Paxton, I think, maybe is more cultured. I mean, it's almost as if it's the yin and the yang. And I mean, can you imagine a brotherly type of situation going forward when it came to the national team? I, I, I certainly can. Not because they're brothers, but because they, I think they each complement each other in a, in a, in a specific way. Um, on the Philadelphia Union point, we, we recently did a Philadelphia NYCFC game. And the day before we spoke to uh, Jim Curtin in a Zoom call. And yeah, he talked about how he, he feels like MLS does have a responsibility to help the U.S. national team. And so he takes great pride in Philadelphia's ability to produce these talented young Americans. And also he said he didn't think twice about releasing them for this tournament. Uh, and they ended up, you know, if, if there's one MLS club that contributed the most of this triumph, it certainly was Philadelphia with Paxson Aronson and Quinn Sullivan and Brandon Craig, uh, Jack McGlynn. So, I mean, what, what do you think about that overall mindset? It's interesting to hear him say that. Well, I mean, I think it's also part of the business structure, right? I mean, the more platforms they get to shine, and for example, Aronson right now, yes, he's a he's not for the future. I mean, would would you would it surprise you if somebody came in for him right now, recognizing that he is already on that trajectory? And so, from a 
from a financial perspective and a business perspective, it makes sense for Jim Curtin, who I think has, you know, and to your point, when we talked to him, it was interesting in the way that he has he has come to accept the fact that this is the way his team operates. And in that sense, you can almost, and it's not that he has he washes his hands of the results because let's be honest, it's still a very, very good team. And that they are able to do both of those things, I think is a credit to Jim Curtin. But I think he also is absolved at times of a coach who said, look, why am I releasing these players when my job depends on them being here? And I think he does feel a higher type of responsibility, not just to the players, but as you mentioned, to to U.S. soccer. And he just gets on with it. And that's what I love about Jim Curtin. That's why he has been uh, successful. And yeah, it might make his his job more difficult when some of these players leave. But ultimately, that asset is appreciating because of these uh, because of these opportunities that they get. And that money can then be put back into uh, the Philadelphia Union going on. So I I get it. I mean, it's almost a a an altruistic, benevolent type of characteristic that we don't really see a whole lot when it comes to coaches out there. Uh, and I love it. Um, and I and I don't think he's going to get fired. And he, I think he will increase his leash, if you will, because he has that type of perspective. Now on the Olympics, already some uh, potential U.S. lineups are popping up on Twitter. Uh, keep in mind, uh, history indicates that European clubs are very reluctant to release players for the Olympics. The 2024 Olympics will take place from July 26th to August 11th. So it bumps up against the start of the European club season. So whatever the best case scenario lineup that us fans have in their heads, I would prepare, you know, for the fact that it's probably not going to be that also keep in mind, there's a Copa America that summer. And there's some talk about the U S taking part in that Copa America being a centenario style tournament with some CONCACAF teams. Well, if that was the case and that would become the priority that summer and the Gio Reyna, Yunus Musa types who are eligible for both, I presume would play with the senior team in the Copa America, not the Olympics. Um, and you know, even at the under 20 level, it's becoming increasingly difficult to put your best foot forward, get everybody released that you would want to play in that tournament. But I think the overall point is that the U S is producing so much talent that even if they have some issues getting players released, there's still going to be enough good players left over that they're going to be able to field strong teams in those tournaments. And also, however much you want to emphasize the Copa America, if it goes that way that summer, I think your message has always been, uh, don't underestimate the value of the Olympics, make every effort you can to, to, to make that a useful tournament, right? Right. And it doesn't mean you can't operate on multiple fronts either because of the amount of talent that we have. It's, it's just inevitable that we're going to do it. And from a practical perspective, like you said, you're not necessarily going to be released, whether it's the under 23 players or whether it's the overage players, whoever it be. So you make the best of whatever that situation can be for the individual that you hope is going to blood them and give them more uh, experience that is going to help you ultimately when you do convene back as a national team. So even yeah, so I that's uh, the the Copa America thing and the, and the Olympics thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll figure all that out, and we have plenty of players, and you'll just assess them, and then eventually when we get back to, I know we're not going to qualify for the next World Cup, so it'll just be you know a steady multiple years of games. You know, I think we're going to see a lot of different players, a lot of different. You know, setups, formations, if you will, because whether it's Greg Berhalt or whoever ends up being the coach leading up to 2026, this coach is going to have to, again, champagne problems, but figure out who that best 26, I guess we're talking about now, is for 2026. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. 
All right, so good things, good things right now, and uh, there is a reason to feel not cautiously optimistic, optimistic about what's happening now in U.S. soccer, uh, on and off the field, and what is definitely going to happen going forward. We talk about 26, but all of these wonderful players, and we will be talking about them. Uh, many of them were introduced through this tournament, but many of you have already seen a lot of these players play either uh, locally uh, or they've come on your radar. But we're going to be talking a whole lot more about them as we get uh, as we get closer to the Olympics, as we get closer to 26. And who knows? You know, it's it's yes, it's coming quickly, November and December. But again, there's a 26 man roster. And maybe Greg Berhalter does what we talked about last week, you know, in a, in a Brazilian way and looks and says, this guy's coming on and I'm going to bring him. Even if he doesn't play, I'm going to bring him to experience in that because I think that's how important he is uh, going forward. Stranger things have happened. All right, we'll take a real quick break. When we come back, there's still all sorts of news going on when it comes to uh, the transfer scene, uh, whether it's American transfers or others out there. So we'll take a look at that. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right, we're back. Uh, Mossy, transfers out there. It is the transfer season. We mentioned that, yeah, there's a little bit of a lull going on, but it started to pick back up. Lots of news, uh, whether it's American players or other players out there. Where do you want to start? Why don't we start with uh, non-American stuff, and then we'll, we'll finish okay. up with Americans. Uh, there was a bombshell development uh, this past weekend. Cristiano Ronaldo has asked to leave Manchester United. Um, he... Uh, has been underwhelmed by their transfer activity. Doesn't think they can compete for the Premier League title this season. And he, he doesn't want to play in the Europa League. He wants to play in the Champions League. Uh, United have so far said that they have no intention of selling him. He, they expect him to honor his contract. But most people feel like if Ronaldo wants to go, he'll get his way. And he evidently has his eye on Bayern Munich. That would be his ideal choice. He's put two and two together and figured that if they do sell Robert Lewandowski to Barcelona, then he could go there as a replacement. Chelsea is all, have also been mentioned because there's this notion out there that this new American owner, Todd Bully, wants to make a big splash. That's why they continue to be linked with Neymar. And now they've been linked to Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't know what Thomas Tuchel has to say about all that. Um, but nevertheless, uh, what's your overall take on Cristiano Ronaldo wanting out of Manchester United? Well, I mean, anybody wanting out of Manchester United should not come as a surprise at all, given what has happened. That it's Cristiano Ronaldo, who I think fosters some pretty interesting debate as to has it been successful or not, or, or whether he now is a poison chalice wherever he goes. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you're Bayern Munich, you're, you might be going, eh, thanks, but no thanks because of what he brings um and there's there's lots lots of good but there is there is some baggage you have to you have to change at times the way that you play because of the player that he is now i'm still of the the opinion that that i want him on my team and that as long as you have players that recognize that they are going to have to do things for him 
And in return, they are going to get the most difficult thing to do in the game, which is which is score goals, which despite the problems at Manchester United, he has shown he can do and he can still do consistently. Um, I think, you know, and maybe I'm just being Pollyanna here. I, I, I think that I that I can make it work um, with uh, with Cristiano. But I mean, there's only a few places that he can go. I don't think he's to, uh, he's Tuchel's cup of tea. But, you know, they're, they're certainly looking for someone like that. I mean, they thought it was going to be Lukaku and, you know, it, it hasn't turned out whether it's Timo Werner or, or Kai Havertz or all the ones that are that are there. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you what, what, what about you? What do you got? A couple of overall thoughts here. First off, uh, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher got into a pissing match about this over the weekend. And Carragher is right and Neville is wrong. Um, it's <laughs> obvious to anybody that really followed this that Cristiano Ronaldo wanted to go to Manchester City last summer. Uh, Pep turned him down, and only then did he accept going to Manchester United. But they then tried to peddle this notion that he chose United over City because of his love for the club, and he felt like it was time to come home. And, you know, only people that believe that nonsense are now shocked that he would turn his back on his club and ask to leave after only one year. Uh, when in fact, Cristiano Ronaldo is still incredibly ambitious, even though he's 38, he's not ready to ride off into the sunset. He still wants to be challenging for major trophies. He wants to win Champions League titles. He wants to win Ballon d'Ors. He wants to finish with a better career than Messi. And so, yeah, I'm sure he views playing for Manchester United this upcoming season in the Europa League and a, and a team that nobody thinks can challenge for the Premier League title. And it would just be fighting to finish in the top four as kind of a wasted year in his career. And he wants to get back into the you know, the center of things and be playing for a team like Bayern Munich that's going to be challenging for the Champions League title. So uh, any United fan that feels blindsided by this, it's only because you bought into that uh, ridiculous narrative that United folk tried to put out last summer. But yeah, as you mentioned, there is this uh, larger debate about, you know, he, Ronaldo, he can still score goals, but is he capable of blending in? Or if you acquire Cristiano Ronaldo, does that mean you inherently have to build your whole attack around him, and then you have to question whether at 38 he's still worthy of that. So, you know, it's an interesting test to see whether Ronaldo can go somewhere at this point in his career and just sort of blend in and be uh, a, obviously a, one of the better players on whatever team he goes to, but not have it be, you know, where it's all built around him and he has to be the guy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, if I'm, I'm still trying to play out the, uh, the move to Bayern Munich if this were to happen. I mean, he would score a shitload of goals in the Bundesliga, let's be honest, all right? Um, with the way that he plays and obviously his talent and just the the sheer opportunities that he would get. But we all know when it comes to Bayern Munich, it's not it's not about that. It's about ultimately what you do in uh, in Champions League. And I'm I'm here for it. I, I'm I'm convincing myself. I'm liking it more and more as I as I hear about it. But I, I, I do think to your point, that he is built and wired differently than others. And if you can channel it, you got to have a, you know, you have to have a coach that he respects. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with with age. Um, it's just, it. there's no room for error. <laughs> Does it rub you the wrong way at all? I mean, he's he's been pretty blessed uh, over the course of his career, the teams that he's played on. He's played... 19 straight seasons in the Champions League, I think it is. He's won it five times. He's the all-time leading scorer in that competition. And now he acts like, at this point in his career, it's beneath him to play in the Europa League. 
should he, you know, he made this move to United, he forced Juventus to let him go, he goes to Manchester United. It, 12 months later, is it a weird move on his part to try to force his way out of a club again because he kind of feels like it's beneath him to play in the Europa League? Does that rub you the wrong way at oh, all? Oh, wait a second. That doesn't, I mean. Or is that, it, we, am, I, am I miscategorizing that? No, because we, we will sit on here and we will talk about uh, and extol the virtues of a player who has the ambition and the motivation to play in Champions League as the top level and the top kind of competition. So why wouldn't it apply to someone like Cristiano Ronaldo? Just because he's won it and played it, as a matter of fact, I think he has maybe more than anybody out there an idea of what it is and that that he wants that again and that he misses that and that he, let's be honest, craves that to challenge himself. I look at that as a positive. I look at that as, again, healthy and positive ambition to do that. And I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't look at it as him thumbing his nose at anything. I mean, I think him just looking at who he is, the player that he is, or the player that he thinks he is, wanting to play in Champions League, which is where, quote unquote, the best soccer is, the best players are, the most competition and the most prestige, and where players test themselves against the best. And regardless of everything that he has done and going down as arguably one of the greatest players, not arguably, he's definitely one of the greatest players ever to play the game, for some, arguably the best player ever to play the game, that he still has that fire and that ambition to do it at quote unquote the highest level, I think that's to be applauded. Uh, on the Neymar front, the only new development there is that there was a clause in his contract with PSG that on July 1st, if he was still on the team, it would be extended for another year until 2027. So it makes that contract even more onerous. Um, PSG are apparently so dead set in getting rid of him that they'd be willing to loan him out and pick up a portion of his salary for this upcoming season. Although it seems like the sporting director, Luis Campos, is dead set on getting rid of him. The coach that just hired Christophe Galtier, from what you read, actually wants Neymar on the team and has a formation in his head that includes Neymar. So you're seeing some conflicting things to come out of Paris. But I do find it funny. I mentioned this earlier that uh, I, I think there's a little bit of an anti-American bias here that everybody assumes Todd Bowley is just some rube that uh, is all he sees is stars and is, is you know, oh, Neymar's available. I got to go get him. Cristiano Ronaldo's available. I got to go get him. And that there's not going to be more thought put into it than that. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that Thomas Tuchel has a say on things. And, and it feels like the Ronaldo Neymar stuff is a smokescreen with Chelsea. And parallel to that, there's the real transfer activity going on, which is they're trying to get Raheem Sterling. They tried to get Rafinha. So I don't know. I'm not sure how much I buy all this Ronaldo Neymar stuff with Chelsea. Um, so uh, we'll see. What, what you- yeah, but also a. A player signing a new contract doesn't preclude them going out the door the right, next right, day. Right. We all understand from a business perspective, at times it is advantageous for a player to play out that contract, and then they're going to make it that much more on the back end if and when they are able to go on a free transfer. But there's the other part of it, too, where you have a bird in the hand and you sign a contract. And look, when Neymar is exercising an option or signing a, a, a new contract, uh, you know it's at ridiculous amounts of money. And so he... He locks that in, if you will, and it doesn't preclude them ultimately from signing him on, especially as one of the great players playing in the world today, what that fee would be. And so it might make sense at times for both parties to do it, even though they are still looking for a way out. 
Uh, Mo Salah did extend his contract with Liverpool, which uh, there were some questions about that. Uh, so it looks like he'll be there for the next uh, three years. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty good news from a Liverpool perspective, right? 350,000 pounds or euros a week? Either way, it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, good for him. That's good. That's good. I, I want to see him continue to play there. And I think from a Liverpool perspective, they need him to continue to play there. Yeah, they lost Mane. They're, they're yeah. probably going to lose Firmino, but they do hold on to Salah, who I think is the best out of that legendary front three. Um, I mentioned Chelsea. They Early last week, they thought they had a deal for Rafinha, but man, he is really dead set on going to Barcelona. So he's stalling on the Chelsea move uh, to try to give Barcelona every opportunity to get their finances in order and to be able to make a, a competitive bid to Leeds. And then he'll push Leeds to sell them to Barcelona instead. So it looks like that's the way that that's going to go. Uh, Tottenham signed uh, Richarlison. That's the other uh, big Brazilian transfer news of the week that had my attention. Uh, Newcastle, a Newcastle fan tweeted me. He wanted me to mention this. Uh, they did sign uh, this excellent center back, Sven Botman from Lille, who's a player that was very much in demand. So that's Newcastle flexing their newfound uh, financial muscle. Um, Juventus, it looks like, are going to sign both Angel Di Maria and Paul Pogba. Pogba arriving, obviously, has Weston McKinney implications, but still, that's Juventus strengthening themselves. Uh, I think those are both pretty good moves. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it from the non-American stuff. All right. We before we go to the American transfers, can we circle back here for the Richarlson? Um, if this player wasn't Brazilian, would anybody care? I mean, is he that good of a player that this makes a big deal going to, to, going to Tottenham? I always felt like he was... Just not quite there as a player, but you know, you may have a better or, or a different read on it. He's a weird one. He's a player whose stock among managers seems to be much higher than it is among us fans who are just kind of looking at the stats and just the eye testing it. Like, you know, Carlo Ancelotti, who coached him at Everton, really wanted Real Madrid to sign him and, and has talked him up as like a future Ballon d'Or winner, while Antonio Conti is super high on him and, and really pushed Tottenham to sign him. So those are managers whose opinion I respect. Uh, Chichi really likes him. He might be starting for Brazil at the World Cup. So there's something about him that managers seem to like more than us who are just kind of you know, uh, looking at it from a different perspective. But yeah, that, that's a lot of money for a player who is not going to start there because they have a pretty defined front three in Kane, Son, and Kulusevsky. Now, they want to build up a strong squad so they can compete on multiple fronts. They're in the Champions League next season. So I get it from a Tottenham perspective. It is an interesting move from a Richarlison perspective, but he's probably sacrificing playing time there a few months before the World Cup. So it's interesting. Him and Gabriel Jesus sort of went opposite directions. Jesus took a step down from Man City to Arsenal for regular playing time. Well, Richarlison took a step up from Everton to Tottenham so he could play in the Champions League and be surrounded by better players. But in doing so, has probably sacrificed his status as a week-in, week-out starter. So it's interesting to see different players, how they approach that. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll have a different view on him uh, when he does or if he gets on the field for for Tottenham. But, you know, it, it, that, that Brazil... <laughs> Uh, attachment can be a blessing and a curse. Now, the, the the Brazil thing is real as far as uh, Brazilian players having their value uh, inflated in the transfer market, especially with youngsters. I mean, if you're an 18-year-old Brazilian and you have like five good games in the Brazilian league, suddenly you're some hot prospect that goes for 20 million euros. Well, you know, I know people that cover uh, South American football, people like Simon Edwards and Adam Brandon, if you follow them on Twitter, it frustrates the hell out of them that there are guys for, that 
come out of these countries like Ecuador and Peru and Paraguay that that end up not going for a lot of money and going to less fashionable clubs. And it's often said, man, if that guy was Brazilian, he would be worth way more than that. So there's definitely something to that. Uh, Such is life. Such is life. All right. What do we got American transfers wise? All right. So the, the goalkeeper situation is fascinating because as Matt Turner arrives at Arsenal to presumably be the number two and not play regularly, the other two goalkeepers that uh, Greg Berhalter has been calling up made opposite moves. Zach Steffen is off to Middlesbrough on loan in the championship where he's projected to be their starter. And Ethan Horvath has moved to championship side Luton Town where he has a good shot at starting regularly there. So what does that do to the U.S. goalkeeper situation? Uh, two guys going backwards to, for playing time. Matt Turner taking a step forward, I think we all think, in his career, but sacrificing playing time in the short term. Well, I mean, Matt Turner is where Zach Steffen was when he arrived at Man City in that you kind of want to go to the top and you want to see what it's all about. Uh, I, I I like the, mer- the move from Zach Steffen because I think it, it gives Greg Berhalter an out for a guy that I do think is his number one and his preferred choice in that he's playing. There will be those that say, yes, but he's going down to a lower level. But, you know, when I when I argue that people are being disingenuous and um, aren't are lacking perspective or any type of reality when they can't fathom an MLS player starting for the national team, it's the same situation here. So that he is going to Middlesbrough. That doesn't change for me who the goalkeeper is. The fact that he is going to be playing, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, for an, on a consistent basis, I think that in and of itself is great for Zach Steffen. I'm not sure how much it's going to equate to the way that, well, certainly the way that Man City plays, but also the way that the U.S. plays and the way that Greg Berhalter wants to play. But He's going to have to save the ball, which ultimately for me has always been the most important thing. And he's going to do it on a consistent basis. So I think it's a I think it's a smart move. And I think ultimately it will be a beneficial move for him relative to the U.S. men's national team. I don't think that Matt Turner, who we've all kind of just placed as the number two goalkeeper. And it's and look, things can happen. Injuries can happen. Preseason can happen. You know, you're uh your attention can be turned as a new coach when somebody comes in. So I, I wouldn't put it past Matt Turner to find a way to, you know, to be in the running or at least in a competition. But chances are he is still going to be the number two goalkeeper, which doesn't mean that he isn't going to start for the U.S. come November, uh, November, and December. So all in all, I think this is a good thing. We've talked about Zach, Zach Steffen over the years possibly doing this. Um, I didn't necessarily think that it was going to happen, but I think he saw, hey, if there is ever a time to do it, and it may, maybe it's just, you know, it ends up being a six-month loan, and back in January, he's back with the team after the World Cup, but maybe this is specific to uh, to his World Cup aspirations, and that he was able to facilitate something like that. Well done, Zach Steffen. An interesting one as far as the U.S. Uh, center forward situation, Jordan Pifak moves from Young Boys to Union Berlin, who were a revelation in the Bundesliga last season, finished fifth. They're going to play in the Europa League in this campaign. So scoring goals at club level has never been the issue for him. Uh, he hasn't impressed Greg Berhalter when he's been with the national team. But people think that if he's scoring goals consistently in the Bundesliga, that might force Berhalter's hand. What, what do you think of that? I mean, if he becomes a different player, because again, to your point, you know, form is fallacy. Until you actually get in that camp, we don't know what you are going to be. And I know we hedge our bets, and rightfully so, with what you are doing at club level. But, you know, PFOC, we, we got him in there, and he was 
scoring like a maniac. And then it's not, it just wasn't working. And so joining Union Berlin, is he automatically going to become that different or better of a player? I, I don't know. It's worth a it's worth a try, I think, ultimately. I mean, if he is playing and he is scoring goals over there, it's I guess it's more possible that he will get called in, but I don't necessarily think that he is that he is going to become a, a different player or the player necessarily that Greg Berhalter is looking right now. I hope it I hope I'm wrong and I hope it happens. And I hope not only does is he successful in this move, regardless of the national team, I hope he's successful, but I hope it translates into a different type of striker. And by the way, some a, a position that we are dying for coming back into the national team. But again, we don't have a lot of opportunities to see players going forward before the World Cup. Uh, it does sound like Tyler Adams is going to end up at Leeds. You know, we did always think that when when he left Leipzig to go to the Premier League, it would be because he impressed so much that he was sold in a big transfer. That's not really what's happening here. Unfortunately, he kind of fell down the pecking order at Leipzig. Yep. They're kind of unloading him. But uh, Jesse Marsh, his former manager, really wants that uh, reunion. And so uh, it looks like he's going to go to Leeds, which, you know, having already acquired Brendan Aronson and having Jesse Marsh as their manager, that's going to be the American team in the Premier League next season. A lot of eggs in that Leeds basket for U.S. fans. Uh, how does this move hit you, uh, Adams and Jesse Marsh reuniting at Leeds? I mean, I look at it as falling up for Tyler Adams. Um, you know, you get to go to the EPL, you get to play for, again, a coach that values you and respects you and wants you. You get to be in an environment where I think, you know, ownership and everybody feels like, okay, you escaped last year, but now we got to fortify and be in a position where we are a solid mid-level EPL team. Um and that type of challenge. And look, it, it's for me, it would be the first time that we are ever seeing Tyler Adams not in a Red Bull system, right? I mean, so that's going to be interesting in and of itself. And I know Jesse and, and obviously comes from that. But taking people out of, of that, you know, that machine that is the Red Bull system, sometimes that can be beneficial. And as you mentioned, it wasn't going well for him. You know, change of coach, change of philosophy, you're in, you're out, you're not favored. Um, so I think he needed a move and that this move is there. And even if it's just facilitated because of the relationships, we all know in life, it's connections, it's relationships, it's timing, all that kind of stuff. I think Leeds is getting a potentially great player who's going to be motivated, not just with the World Cup, but motivated to come to a new country and culture and one that I'm sure Tyler Adams has dreamt about over his life um, and over his career. So I think this is, I think this is a great move. Uh, Ricardo Pepe scoring for Augsburg in a preseason game. Does that uh, get your hopes I mean, up at all? But that, that we actually make something <laughs> just shows how far Ricardo Pepe is, has fallen. I mean, he scored in a preseason game and look, I'm not going to poo poo it because he needs all the help that he can get. It did not go great. You know, it was a young player who was, you know, just flying high and it deflated very, very quickly. So goals are good, in my expert opinion. Regardless of when they come, we'll see if he kicks on, as they say, going forward. I mean, first off, he's got to get back into the lineup. Then he's got to actually score goals. And then he's got to be playing in a way that Greg Berhalter feels, again, to the PFOC situation where it translates to what the national team is. So that's, there's a lot of 
steps in order for Ricardo Pepe to get back. But that he scored in the preseason, congratulations, Ricardo. Uh, one last non-American move that I forgot to mention earlier, but is a nice story we should mention. Uh, Christian Eriksen is signed with Manchester United. So unlike Ronaldo, he is keen on playing for Manchester United. And it completes a real comeback story for him. Uh, the fact that he was able to come back from that horrible incident at the Euros, sign with Brentford and then play well enough that he was in demand this summer with big clubs after him and he, and he goes to Manchester United. So uh, that's nice to see. That's amazing. Uh, before we came on air, uh, I was reading a story about you know, the Christian Pulisic situation. I know there's always rumors, and especially with what Chelsea's going on, and then that that connection to Juventus. So I, I think we had talked about before as a possibility. I think Christian uh, Pulisic, I think he wants to stay in the EPL. I think he wants to stay in London. I think he wants to stay at Chelsea. But what he wants and what Chelsea wants might be two different things. So there still could be news. By the time you're listening to this, things may have changed. Or by next week when we're talking, there still could be some Christian Pulisic moves because you know he's he's a great player who just happens to be American. And I think there's going to be a lot of suitors out there. Um, so this this saga uh, or this potential change in the summer might still not be uh not, might not be over and why is that important well you know relative to the world cup again where he goes what he does is he playing is he playing consistently because no matter what um you know christian pulisic isn't perfect he has his faults but ultimately he is for my money the most important attacking piece that the u.s has and he cannot afford to hide. We cannot afford to have a U.S. team, whether it's against Wales, whether it's against England, or whether it's against Iran in the group stage. We can't afford to have him be anything less than his, you know, his 100% self. That is it. All right, we'll take another quick break. And when we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right, we're back and we're cruising through this show. We're going to hopefully get this done a little earlier than in the past. Um, let's see here. We got uh, Twitter questions, right? When it comes to Ask Alexi. So uh, what do the people want to know this week? Or this week, excuse me, not this year. Uh, first up, at FSebastian74 asks, who is your favorite to lift the Copa Libertadores trophy? Uh, if you listen to last week's podcast, that taping occurred against the backdrop of all these reports that River Plate was going to sign Luis Suarez. Um, and I said that if they do in fact sign Suarez and by the time he arrives, they're still in the Copa Libertadores, then they would be the prohibitive favorites to win it. I stand by that. Uh, however, a couple things, um, while last Monday, all the reports were that this signing was imminent, uh, a week has gone by and I haven't read anything else about it. So I don't know if, uh, the trail's gone cold or what's going on there. So, um, kind of on standby there to find out if in fact they are going to sign Suarez, uh, but number two, that River Plate actually lost their round of 16 first leg to Velez Sarsfield 1-0. Could have been worse. Armani made a couple of saves in the second half to keep it at 1-0. Uh, so now they come back home looking to overturn that deficit. They're certainly capable of doing that. But still, they have some work to do this week to even advance to the quarterfinals. Uh, so keep an eye on that. Also, it's not like Brazilian clubs are just standing pat waiting for this Suarez thing to resolve itself. 
Flamengo made a pretty big uh, move of their own. They signed Arturo Vidal. Um, they, are, yeah, they already signed Everton Cebolinha from Benfica. So that's two pretty big moves from Flamengo. Atlético Paranaense, who have already signed Fernandinho, are now being linked to Danny Alva. So the Brazilian clubs continuing to make moves. Um, and we'll see what that means as far as this competition. Um, in, in terms of the round of 16 first legs, the two-time defending champions Palmeiras beat Cerro Porteño 3-0. That is really the only tie that's done and dusted. All the other ones are still in the balance. Flamengo, who I just mentioned, won one nil away to Deportivo Tolima, so they're going to try to protect that lead at the Maracanã. Atlético Paranaense beat Libertad 2-1. They have to go to Paraguay to protect that lead. So I'm reluctant to talk up any team as a contender to win this whole thing because by the time people listen to this podcast, they might be out of the competition. So let's wait and see how the round of 16 wraps up, and then maybe before the quarterfinals, I'll, I'll kind of see where we're at. Um, the, the, the glamour tie, I suppose, is Corinthians, Boca Juniors. They played to a nil-nil draw in Sao Paulo, and now the scene shifts to La Bombonera this week. Uh, glamour tie in name only because I don't think either team is that good or a serious threat to win it. But um, you know, we'll see. So we've got the round of 16 second legs coming up this week. I'm looking forward to that. Mossy, did you see the uh, the Palmeiras, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Serra Porteño game? Yeah, Gustavo Scarpa produced the blooper of the week. Uh, <laughs> he tried to take a short corner and and tripped. What did you make of that uh, incident? Uh, you should je- check it out if you if, <laughs> if, if you haven't, because it's, it's really interesting. And actually, if you watch it, because there was a question as to did the AR in that moment, uh, and it was a corner kick and the AR was down there as they all are. Did the AR actually trip the player or did the player <laughs> play it up, flop and do all that kind of stuff? If, if, if you know, for any of the referees out there, you are actually, if there is something going on and there's a delay in the game or there's something being decided, as a referee, you are taught to actually step in front and you are taught to actually inhibit players from playing or playing fast in order to get everything settled before everything is okay. Uh, if if you watch the referee where the referee's foot is, yeah, I mean, he made himself an obstacle to the play continuing. <laughs> now, the player also played it up as if he had gotten two-footed tackled, you know, through the shin with protruding bone or something like that. But it was fun to actually see uh, see something like that. So you should check it out on YouTube if you've got a, if you've got a chance. Next up, at Turner ESQ, is this Yeah, Esquire, maybe. Esquire, yeah. <laughs> um, asks, um, should Montreal, Vancouver, and or Toronto move to the Canadian Premier League? Uh, keep in mind, when we had our rundown meeting, we went over this question. Luis Aguilar said disdainfully, that's ridiculous. So he, he finds this preposterous. I don't know if Luis wants to chime in, but uh, what do you make of it? I mean, if Canada is going to grow into this big soccer nation, I mean, they've qualified for World Cup. They're hosting the next one. They're producing players like Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David. At some point, that's going to entail having a proper domestic league. So in my, I suppose the goal is to build that league up enough to the point where Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver would be willing to leave MLS and go actually play in the Canadian domestic exactly. league. I don't know if we're five years away from that or 50 years away from that, but nevertheless, that is the goal ultimately. So, so what well, do you think? that's the rub. And you don't hear this argument when it comes to the NHL. Um, so when I think about what Canada is, and look, this is a, this is a moment where Canada is being celebrated. And, you know, I think it's right because of the great talent that they have and going to the World Cup again for the first time since 1986. From a men's perspective, the women's team has always been an elite team. Um, The, you know, the formation of Canadian soccer and Canadian professional soccer 
And yet, when it comes to Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto, these are teams that have been with Major League Soccer for much of its existence. These are teams that bought into Major League Soccer in terms of the ownership. These are teams that recognized the potential. These are teams that um, recognized the growth opportunity and therefore the business for their individual markets and for the sport, whether it's in their country in Canada or in general in North America. And to your point, Mossy, why would they want to go anyplace else in, in terms of what Major League Soccer has become? Many of these teams, when they came into the league, um, whether it's Montreal or Vancouver or, uh, or Toronto, their asset, which is their team, what they paid as an expansion fee has dramatically increased. Their, you know, their existence, their profile has been enhanced. They have contributed both on and off the field from a competitive standpoint and from a financial standpoint to the success of the overall endeavor. And we know that Major League Soccer is a single entity, and so you own a piece of the entire machine, not just your own little piece up there. So I think it's it's hard to bring that train back to the station. You can tug on heartstrings and you can say, well, you need to be um, a, a champion of Canadian soccer. But why would anybody from a business perspective regress? Why would anybody devalue uh, their product and their asset that they have simply to be a part of something that is going to grow? You may say, hey, you're going to take a step back in order to go two steps forward with what Canada is going to be. I just don't, I don't see it happening. I think it's a, a worthwhile conversation to have and an interesting debate as to how you feel about your national soccer footprint and landscape and the potential that it has and how you can play a part, either positively or negatively in it. But I think that this comes down to business. And I don't want, in the same way that I don't want promotion relegation mandated on anyone, I don't want somebody mandating that the Canadian teams in Major League Soccer have to secede, I guess, would be the word from Major League Soccer and do their own thing uh, own thing in Canada. Unless it's something that they want to do, I think we're just going to continue on right now with, uh, with what they are. Does that hurt, you know, the Canadian Premier League? Does that hurt the possibilities of, of growth and expansion when it comes to Canadian soccer? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, these teams did what they felt was right in the moment. And in doing so, you know, they established a really, really good um, business. And I know I, and I, it's okay to call it business. It's not a pejorative. But they established something good. And I, I just don't see that coming back. A uh, couple of uh, MLS notes. Um, on last week's pod, you mockingly asked me what country Brenner was from. And I said, I'm ashamed to admit <laughs> it, but he is Brazilian. Well, I'm no longer ashamed. I will say full-throatedly that the most informed striker in MLS is Brazilian because he has gone on an absolute tear of five goals in three games. He scored this past weekend in a 2-2 draw against New England. And um, in the midweek game against NYCFC, he bagged a hat trick, actually put the ball in the back of the net five times. Two of them were chalked off. Uh, Cincinnati NYCFC playing to a 4-4 draw, one of the craziest games in recent MLS history. Nuts. Seven of the eight goals were scored by Brazilians, all four NYC goals. Uh, Eber got two. Thales Magno and Gabriel Pereira got the others. Um, 
So, I mean, two things there. First off, Brenner all of a sudden coming on, and, and we know how well Brandon Vasquez has done. So Cincinnati has quite the strike pairing there. And then NYCFC, they followed up that Cincinnati game by drawing 2-2 against Atlanta this past week. And they are now winless in five games under Nick Cushing. They've gone from first to fourth in the standings, uh, which everybody's bunched together there and they have games in hand. So that in and of itself is not that big a deal. But just it feels like this coaching transition has not gone well for them. It hasn't, and I'm sure it's been you know, difficult for players and you got to, you know, you have to figure it out to your point about the, the standings here between first and fourth, there's three points difference. And as you mentioned, difference in terms of games played. So New York has two games less than uh, the Red Bulls over there. So lots could change, but Cincinnati sitting at 25 points, sitting at fifth place, well and comfortable into the playoff uh, spot. But again, there's three teams, six, seven, or five, six, seven, that are all tied at 25 points. So that parity that has been manufactured and is sought after by Major League Soccer from an East Coast or an Eastern uh, Conference perspective is there and is awesome because it's going to make it really interesting. You have teams like Cincinnati that have been so bad that are now feeling good about themselves. And Pat Noonan and Chris Albright over there deserve a tremendous amount of credit. So far, still relatively early days, and we're still heading through the summer. Charlotte, who I think there was some cons- you know concern about, is sitting right along that line and can do some uh, interesting uh, interesting things. So uh, you know, this is what you want. This is what you want. DC in last place over there in the Eastern Conference, just not going well. Chicago also not going well. Toronto has has not kicked on, although Insigne is is now back, and maybe that changes some fortunes going forward. But Toronto and Atlanta, these teams that you know we expect more from, sitting in eleventh and twelfth right now. And again, you can kick on, and things happen. Crazy stuff happens uh, happens in the fall right now. But right now, I think the winners in terms of this first half of the season would have to be Cincinnati. And I guess to a certain extent, Charlotte, when it comes to the Eastern Conference. And again, we're taping this on a Monday morning, July 4th, because there's a few games today that could affect the standings you just rattled off. Uh, so uh, we'll see. Um, finally, uh, last. Uh, hold on. Let me just let me just hold on before we go there. I just want to go over to the uh, the Western Conference just because we didn't do any MLS in the first segment. Yep, and yep. I just want to finish it off here. Uh, L.A., in terms of the Galaxy, continues to struggle right now. Greg Vanny and company, they they are they are hurting. They lost at home to Minnesota. Uh, and Minnesota, by the way, big week, two wins in a row. So they jump up. They're still not in the playoff standings, but they're still at eighth. And they they were desperate for that type of stuff to happen. Uh, Kansas City, as, as we mentioned right now, all eggs in the U.S. Cup basket and sitting in last place for Peter Vermes. And I think that they've just chalked this season up to it's just not happening uh, right now. LAFC, who we mentioned, uh, welcomes, uh, well, first off, the signing of Vela, uh, welcomes Bale. Uh, and welcomes Gallini uh, going forward. They're sitting pretty at 36 points at number one, five points ahead of Austin. I think the big winners when it comes to the Western Conference would undoubtedly be Austin sitting in second place right now. Seattle, who I don't think we had any doubt, but given the way that they kind of put, again, all eggs in that basket, which was great because they ended up being CCL champions, have rocketed back up to fifth place right now, one point behind Nashville sitting in fourth uh, right now. But I think Austin and Salt Lake um, probably are the surprises and the pleasant surprises from the Western Conference right now, halfway through the year. Yeah, Austin play Colorado today. So winning that game, they'd move in two points of LAFC in the supporter show standings. Although if I was a betting man, I think Seattle will finish second in the West when it's all said and done behind LAFC. Yep. 
All right. What else? So we'll end on a non-soccer question. Okay. At Sienna Gledinho asks, uh, we are going to need an Ask Mossy to get thoughts on the college football Super League. Oh. Now, he frames this as a question to me, but you were discussing this on Twitter as well. So you have thoughts. <laughs> yeah, the, the bombshell news that's been dominating the non-soccer part of my brain the last uh, few days is the fact that uh, USC and UCLA will be joining the Big Ten Conference in 2024. Other teams could be on the way. It's all part of this college football realignment. Um, you know, I am, uh, I don't consider myself a traditionalist. Uh, you know, I can get with NIL and the transfer portal and all these other changes. This one, uh, it's going to take a minute to process because, you know, I mean, we all grew up at a time when college football conferences, there was some geographical <laughs> logic to them. And the fact that USC are going to be playing in the big 10 and playing regular season games against Michigan and Ohio state, it's, it's a lot to process. Uh, I have to be careful because the network uh, we work for is all for this. So I, I can't <laughs> I can't say it's a negative. I'll just say right, it's right. different. It's a change. And it's going to take me a minute to process, but I'm sure I'll get there. What, what are your thoughts on this? Okay, so a couple of things. Uh, number one, we're, we're talking about the Big Ten, right? <laughs> the Big Ten has not been the Big Ten for a long time, okay? And this certainly only makes it that much bigger. So it's there's it's not 10, and it... And it, it's never going to be 10 going forward. So first off, a rebrand is in order, all right? Call it the big league or whatever you want to call it. I like the big thing. I think you can do something with that, but stop with the numbers right now because it's just getting absurd. Uh, as far as the, the footprint out there, I know you come at it from a different angle. I come at it from, I want to see great teams play. I come at it maybe from a, to use the, the, the soccer world, from a Super League perspective. And these are... It, they don't like to be called businesses, but let's be honest. When it comes to universities and colleges out there, they are businesses, and certainly their athletic programs are businesses. In that, while they can be nonprofits, there is still a business element in the way that they run. And whether it's businesses, whether it's schools, whether it's human beings, we are all going to do what is beneficial to us. Okay? It doesn't mean that there's not that you don't think about others. It doesn't mean you can't be charitable. But ultimately, this is good for the likes of UCLA and USC. Who is it? UCLA and USC? Are those the ones? Correct. Uh, because they get to go into, you know, a a big league. We're talking about, or they get to go into the big league. And there's more competition. I think, I, I can't be sure, but there's probably more money. Uh, we saw people riot and revolt when it came to soccer uh, and changing the traditions and the history uh, of the Super League. And I don't think that we have seen that. I know you're trying to wrap your brain around it, but I don't think you're taking to the streets. <laughs> and certainly we're not seeing that type, uh, that type of reaction. Yes, from a Fox perspective, being that we televise the Big Ten, uh, or sorry, the Big League, uh, this is a this is a good thing going forward, but ultimately, as a as a neutral, I want to see all the big teams. And I still I don't know a whole lot about football, but I still look at a UCLA or a USC as you know maybe not in this moment being the greatest teams, but still big teams. And it makes it and they're sexy, they're big names, and it makes the uh, the big league that much bigger, if you will. So I'm excited about it. It's funny. When I was growing up, the ultimate goal for Michigan was to end up in the Rose Bowl every year. 
And now that's just going to be a regular season game every other year because UCLA, that's where they play their home games. So it's going to demystify this notion of playing at the Rose Bowl. I will say this. Um, we are nothing if not trendsetters when it comes to the Scarlet Knights of Rutgers. And that this has happened after Rutgers decided to grace the Big Ten, the big league, with our presence should come as a surprise to no one. Uh, there are followers in life and there are leaders. And when it comes to Rutgers, we lead. We recognized that that was the next frontier, that that needed to be done, that that was what was good for us. And that's what we did. And people like UCLA and USC are followers. I get it. It makes them smart. But ultimately, uh, they're just following in the footsteps of the great Rutgers University. Uh, last thing, uh, you know, Michigan is uh, really struggling recruiting wise right now. And there's a lot of concerns about Michigan's approach to NIL because other schools are paying lots of money up front for recruits to go there. Well, Jim Harbaugh has said that he wants Michigan to be a transformational experience, not a transactional. And Jeez, come on, man. <laughs> this is like this is like, you know, my good friend Sunil Gulati, uh, you know, the, the the quote that he had, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, it's all fine and well uh to talk about uh you know standing on principle unless you're standing in quicksand. And the world has changed and it has changed overnight, and it should be a surprise to no one, including Jim Harbaugh that this is what has been created. And people predicted it, okay? This is what people wanted. Well, not everybody, but this is what a lot of people wanted. This is also what people framed and predicted would happen to college when it comes to money. And so if you can't beat them, you gotta join them or you risk becoming obsolete. And so he is doing a disservice. I know, he, I know he's gonna stand on his, uh, on his high horse and say, and this, you know, it's it's bigger than money, and this is a university, and this is an experience, and all that kind of stuff. Fine, then go coach, you know, at a small little liberal arts school that where winning and losing doesn't matter or anything like that, and it's certainly relative to the business doesn't change anything. And you can you can sit on your high horse and do all that kind of stuff. But if you're the coach of Michigan and you haven't evolved and you haven't changed and you are not playing the game with the new rules that have been written right now, then you are doing a disservice to your school. And I would submit you are not doing your job. Uh, we are just two months away from the start of the college football season. By the way, the Ohio State-Michigan game in Columbus is November 26th, the day after the England-USA World Cup games. So that's an incredible two days on Fox. Uh, I'll be in Doha for that Ohio State-Michigan game, trying to find a pub to watch it. I don't, I don't know what hour it's going to be on there. but. Uh, <laughs> All right, my friend. Anything else? That is it. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for everybody who's sending your uh, questions out there with the Ask Alexi uh, hashtag. Keep doing those. We love them. Uh, so whether you're sending them there or, or on the hotline or anything like that, keep those uh, keep those going. Uh, we're going to wrap this thing up here in a second. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll give you my one for the road. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
All right, we're back, and it's the end of the show here on this July 4th in 2022. At the end of each and every show, as you know, I give you my one for the road. Uh, it is, as we mentioned, July 4th, Independence Day. Um, it is, I think, a cause for celebration, a cause for joy, um, and a cause for reflection in terms of the country that I live in. Uh, I know that there are those out there who maybe are struggling to find something to celebrate about America. I would, I would submit to you that if you are, then I, I, I think you, you really don't want to find anything. And listen, there are plenty of things to complain about, like any country uh, and like anything. But it is also relative. And the good of America, I think, is overwhelmingly evident and overwhelmingly abundant. And again, this, this notion that I have, it's not rooted in, in blind faith. Um, it's just, I see, of course, the real problems that we have. And I, you know, I know the pain out there, and I know the anger and the frustration that stems from all of these problems. But, you know, there, there is a reason why so many people want to come to America. There's a reason why many even risk their lives to do so. It's the freedom and it's the opportunity and it's, it's so many countless other advantages that can be found in America. And I know I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. At times, we take them for granted. But you know, this country, from its birth, this land has represented the promise of, of a better life. And it's not guaranteed. And it's not always fair in terms of its distribution. So... If you're out there on today, or any other day for that matter, complaining about America, that's okay. This country provides us the freedom to do so. And guess what? I'll fight for your right to complain. But I, I also bet that you and me and others, we can find plenty to celebrate America if, if you really want to find that. Anyway, uh, here's to all of you. I hope you're having a wonderful and safe and happy uh, and joyous celebration uh, if you are here in this country and if you are privileged enough to be living in this great and beautiful country. And to everyone that's not, because we know we have a lot of listeners and followers out there and watchers out there that aren't necessarily in the U.S. or American out there, I still hope you're having a wonderful time. You know, we're having a, a good time here celebrating uh, this country and, you know, long live red, white, and denim out there. And tomorrow will be July 5th, and <laughs> we will go on. And we don't necessarily need a day, but that we have this day, um, I love it. I love it. And uh, as I said, I'm going to go out there and hit the golf ball a little bit for my one time a year, have some drinks, uh, you know, have a, have a little bit of celebration. We did some fireworks last night, which were really, really cool. And uh, there's a reason why when I touch down on from being overseas on that tarmac, I get a feeling unlike anything else of, of returning home to my, to my home. And like I said, times we take it for granted, I hope that, that I can remind myself as much as possible never to take it for granted because, uh, because of all that it has afforded me. And I recognize that, uh, that it has given me so much over the years. Uh, Mossy. Do you have any plans here for July 4th? Not really, just relaxing. Uh, I, I do have some work to do this afternoon, so, uh, but uh, yeah, nothing special. 
Nothing special. Nothing special. All right. Well, listen, um, have a wonderful July 4th to you, Mossy, uh, to Louise. Hope you guys have a good uh, a good day. We will be on or back in our regular scheduled uh studio next week. So I'll be back in LA. We're going to actually be in studio if I uh, if I remember correctly, which will be nice to actually see you guys and to do that from uh, the studio. We have all sorts of MLS action coming this, uh, this summer. And obviously we're gearing up for a hell of a fall and into a uh, winter with the World Cup. So uh, this is the calm before the storm, if you will. So I'll see you guys back in Los Angeles next week. Thank you everybody out there for listening and writing and uh, yeah, you know, reviewing and rating and downloading and subscribing and doing all the different things that uh, you do out of there. As we tell you, it, it is a labor of love, and we're glad that anybody out there pays any attention. Mossy, anything to say before we go? That's it. All right, we'll talk to you and see you next week on the State of the Union podcast. And until then, and as always, size the day. America! America!